0: Today's reading will be from Ephesians 2, verses 1 through 10. And you are dead in the trespass and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at the work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated.
1: All right, thank you, Brian. Wow, that that Shelby person is so outstanding. Thanks, Joe and Shelby, for doing that. Appreciate that. Um, Good morning, Redemption. How are you? My name is Frank. I know if you've been here the last two weeks, you're like, who's that guy on the platform? Um, uh, Last weekend, Jackie and I got to go to Iowa for uh, talking about the camp, as a matter of fact, that very camp that Shelby was talking about. Uh, in, in, uh, In March, they always have a couples retreat, and Jackie and I were invited to speak at their couples retreat, and so that's where we were last week. And Oh, by the way, I listened to Josh's message. Was that not really good last week? If this is your second time here and you're looking for Josh, I'm really sorry. I'll pray for you, okay? So we are still in the book of Ephesians. We'll be for a while. Uh, We're on to chapter 2 now. Josh set us up last week. Uh, with verses 1 through 3, we're going to look primarily at verses 4 through 7, but we're going to uh, talk about, uh, we're, we're going to sh- show the connection between verses 1 through 3 and, and 4 through 7. Um, and, and what happened last week was uh, we discussed our condition as human beings apart from Jesus. And, and Paul doesn't pull any punches on this. He says apart from Jesus, we are dead. We are spiritually dead. Uh, Let me just say this about being spiritually dead. Uh, Many people believe that being alive spiritually specifically means that they are in touch with themselves. That they are in touch with their inner life, with their heart, with their mind, and with their identity. And And as a result, we have a culture that spends an awful lot of time with people really just focused on self. Now, it's not that knowing who you are is a bad thing. I'm not saying that. The problem comes when we do this apart from who God is. That's the problem. We, We exclude everything else, including and especially God, and we only focus on ourselves in that way. If we don't know who we are, along with who God is and how we are related to God, we are going to have a very skewed understanding of who we are. We're going to have, here you go, a really elevated and inflated understanding of who we are that will ultimately get us into a lot of trouble. Without God, Martin Luther spoke of this centuries ago. Without God, it's what he calls in, in the Latin, incurvitus in se." In other words, human beings just being curved in on themselves, which without God is a completely anti-God, narcissistic state of existence, and by definition is spiritual death. That's what Paul is talking about. Uh, Paul, here you go, here's a current 21st century pop cultural reference. We are the walking dead. We are dead and we don't even know it. We're walking around, thinking we're pursuing life in and of ourselves, but we're actually dead. Life actually comes from outside of us in communion with Jesus. Here's what Eugene Peterson says, the whole of life, the whole of spiritual life is learning how to die to self. This is the gospel, and it is what Christ did when he went to the cross. Now what we're going to do is we're going to build on that. We're going to come back and look even a little bit more at verse 3 because we we need to show this continuity. As Joe said during the announcements, there's a continuity that happens here every week because we're going through books. So let's let's keep looking at this. I'm going to start actually in verse 3 and read through verse 7. Paul writes he's speaking of this spiritual death until he gets to verse 4. Among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, but God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive again together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. One of the things we need to remember that when he transitions, when Paul transitions into verse 4, he again begins to praise. He's praising, he's celebrating who we are in Christ and what Christ has done for us. But there's also wonderful teaching in the midst of this, and that's what we're gonna be doing. And, and I, again I want to just draw you to that contrast between verses one and three, one through three that, that Josh hit last week and verses four through seven. The contrast is simple and stark. We were dead, but God made us alive. We were dead, but God made us alive. The greatest idiom known to humanity is the two words, but God. But God. Notice how it's never but we. You ever thought about that? It's never but we. But we figured it out. But we did something incredible. But we became smarter than everybody else and made the decision to come to Christ. Paul is consistent in pointing us to the fact that this is all, all God's power, all God's grace, all God's mercy, and it's all his purpose. It's all his purpose. Uh, Rosaria Butterfield, who's recently written her second book about um, the secret thoughts of an unlikely convert. You know, people would say if, if ever there was a, somebody who was eligible for not coming to Jesus, it would be Rosaria, and, and she's a great example of, of the power and the grace of God working in her life to transform her life and, and her heart. In her most recent book, she writes this. Listen. She said, if Jesus is the creator of all things, and he is, and if the Bible, his word, has his seal of truth and power, then the Bible has the right to interrogate my life and culture and not the other way around. Now, catch that. The Bible has the right to interrogate my life and culture and not the other way around. Now, I'm not even going to talk about people who who are not believers in in Jesus Christ. Of course, they wouldn't wouldn't, uh, consider this book authoritative in in their life, and and I understand that. I'm talking about people who call themselves Christians, Christ followers. Uh, There are many who attend church every week, call themselves Christians who still believe, here's this incurvatus in say, this turning in on ourselves, who still believe that what we do with the Bible is we strain the Bible through our life and experience, we interrogate the Bible based on our life and experience, and we sort out the things in God's word that don't apply to us and aren't true for us, and then we, then we embrace what's left. And isn't it interesting that what we embrace is usually stuff that we agree with And we like. The problem is is that the scriptures need to confront us in particular areas of our lives. And so properly what we should be doing is straining our life, our culture, our understanding through this grid. And sorting out what isn't true for us based on what's true here. And that's what Rosaria did. There's Maybe the Apostle Paul had less of a chance of coming to Jesus than Rosaria. And so she's speaking from experience. She's saying, that moment when I began to understand that I needed to strain my life and culture through Scripture, that's when Jesus became real. That's when my heart was changed. That's when the Holy Spirit converted my heart to faith. And so I start with verse 3 to show this contrast. I also started with verse 3 because I want to just hit this desires of the flesh thing one more time. You heard Josh last week talk about this, and he's right. Uh, and we've said this for, for, for a long time. The world, and, and Josh, I loved it. He encapsulated it with, with Disney movies, okay? He, sa- he said, have you noticed how... Disney movies, essentially, their narrative is this. If you just follow your heart, all of life is going to turn out perfectly for you. If you just follow your heart. The the world has been telling us that our our desires are always good and trustworthy. And if we have a desire of the heart, we must follow it. We must go for it. But the truth is, our desires need way more scrutiny than to just go for it. They really do. I'll personalize this for you. You do not want to live around a Frank Switzer who only lives by the desires of his heart. And if you, if you would like to know some more information about that, it's Jackie Switzer at Cox.net. Okay. Um, and this plays out on a couple of levels. Uh, there's certainly the more obvious level of, of the desires of the flesh that are manifested in sin, the corrupt nature that you and I are born with, And that we practice and yet try to hide. Isn't it interesting? You know, we say, I have the right to do that, and yet we still try to hide it. You know, that's pretty a good measure if you're trying to hide something from somebody. You know, the lying, the gossip, the falsifying, the cheating, the stealing, the slander, the sexual immorality, the jealousy, the envy, the fits of anger. By the way, those aren't my words. They're Paul's words. You can find those those words in, in Scripture and other places where he writes. It's the idea that we're, we're sinners not only by nature and not only by choice, but we are sinners both by nature and by choice. Uh, Paul, again, Josh, I'll just re-preach what Josh preached last week. It was so good. But remember when he said, you know, the fall, describing what happened in Genesis 3 as a fall is, is really not big enough. You know, you stumble, you fell, you maybe got a little boo-boo. No, it, the corruption is Massive. Okay. But there's another way that our desires of of the flesh, the desires of our heart, another level that, that messes with us. And it's it's more confounding because it's so much more subtle. And we don't even we generally realize the sin part, but we don't generally realize this other part, and it can be just as destructive. It's the fact that our hearts often point us toward things that we believe are, those things are going to fulfill us and make us happy. And these are things that are certainly not wicked or evil in and of themselves. But, but in our flesh, we get fixated on these things, and, and we believe that they are the answer to our quest for happiness, fulfillment, satisfaction, and contentment, only to be tragically disappointed once we attain them. You ever notice that? Or maybe the joy of attaining them, it doesn't last. You know, the law of diminishing returns. This is what we would call uh, idols or false gods. We take a good thing, we make it an ultimate thing, and then it becomes a destructive thing. Uh, Nicholas Carr, in his most recent book, The Glass Cage, which I highly recommend, very helpful book, he talks about this in his last book. Uh, now, understand, Carr is not a Christian Christian. He doesn't cite Christian research, quote, Christian research. He doesn't have a Christian agenda, but he reports on the research. And here's what he says. He says, as you and I as human beings, just about anywhere we are and just about anything that you and I are doing, we're pretty much convinced that we'd be happier somewhere else doing something else with someone else. We'd just be happier. It's, It's... Part of the reason, this whole foMO thing, okay that we some of us live with now I read that and I thought that's I, I, I've mentioned this before that is true, especially based on my experience for twenty years as a pastor, as a shepherd. this is just true we are generally discontent we may not say it out loud, but generally our hearts are just discontent with all of the most important things in our lives we're, we're we want to be someone else, we really do. We look around at the world and we're sure that we could be happier if we were just somebody else who's better than we are. That's called the social comparison process and we all we all do it. And oh, by the way, social media has just made this worse because you don't see people posting the worst parts of their lives on Facebook and on Twitter and Instagram. It's always the best parts And specifically, it's designed to make you feel like you wish you were them, okay? We also want to be somewhere else. We do. We're pretty sure that wherever we are, it's better somewhere else. And sometimes we can define where that somewhere else is. Sometimes we can't. Um, Shelby mentioned that she's getting ready to uh, go away to graduate school. She's going to move to Houston in June. But one of the schools she interviewed with uh, last fall was in Philadelphia. And so I went with her on that. Interview, I had never been to Philadelphia before, but I will tell you, I love larger Midwestern and Eastern cities that have culture and tradition. I love those cities. And I'd never been to Philadelphia before, and I spent three days there with Shelby. I loved it. It was just, it was fantastic. I'm like, this has got to be the most underrated city in the whole world. I could see myself living here. It would be so much better than Phoenix. (laughs) Here's what killed me, though. Every person I talked to in Philadelphia who found out I was from Phoenix, what did they say? Oh, to live in Phoenix, it must be wonderful living in, I wish I lived in Phoenix, and I'm going, I wish I lived in Philadelphia, could we switch? And then you can be miserable in Phoenix, and I'll be miserable in Philadelphia, how's that? We also want to be with someone else. This might embarrass Jackie and I might have two days of complete silence from her, but I'm pretty sure, I'm pretty sure that if Roger Federer were available, I I can't even have a conversation with her during Wimbledon, of course, until he gets ousted, then I can start talking to her again. It's okay, it's funny, I'm just kidding, okay? It's not that funny, Frank. And we also want to be doing something else. We we do. The number of people I talk to are just, I wish I I hadn't picked this this vocational track. I wish I were doing something else. It seems like lawyers are a lot happier than doctors. No, doctors are a lot happier than accountants. No, well, accountants, I don't know. (laughs) We're just not content where we are, right? I mean, think about it. But then, where we get to where we think the happiness will be, we often look back and realize, hey, things were actually better back there, doing what we were doing with those people. (laughs) You're not as great as I thought you were, bye. (laughs) Uh, Carr's primary example of this in his book is work and retirement. Now, hang in there with me on this, okay? He says, most of us are pretty sure that if we had the money, retirement would be the wheelhouse of happiness for us. Freedom, no demanding schedule, no one to answer to, do whatever we want. You know, work is arduous. It's unfair. It's restrictive in myriad ways. And, we, and it's often, we feel like it's kind of meaningless. But then, people retire and they get what they've worked for and wanted for so long. And, you know, it's great for a couple of months. But then, according to his research, the realization sets in. The retired person isn't as happy as they thought they would be. They're not as fulfilled as they thought they would be. And, and the retired person begins to feel like, I, I need that purpose back in my life. I, 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 I'd like to feel a little bit more relevant than just playing golf. Um. And they say, they, my desires betrayed me. Now, we can find purpose and mission in retirement. That's not what I'm saying. But if you don't have a plan, you will drift and you will wander. And that will be a problem. Uh, Matt Smethurst writes this. I hear this. This, is gonna, this. Some of you are going to be really... You're gonna, this is going to be new to you. He says, the heart was not created to be followed. It was created to be led. And led by Christ. The desires of the flesh are not just sin, but they're also misdirection and betrayal. God intends for us to find value, fulfillment, and significance wherever we are, doing whatever we're doing with whoever he has placed us with. Wherever we are. We need to quit looking elsewhere and start looking at what's right in front of us. And see how God's working there. Now, he may move us, he may retool us, he may re-educate us, he may change us. But wherever we are, that's our mission and purpose. Uh, Tim Keller writes this. Ever notice that other people's hearts rarely follow your heart? That's because we are selfish and so are they. We are self-centered and so are they. We are misdirected and so are they. And so, listen to this. And so the notion of following our heart is actually de-unifying. It is the opposite of the gospel. So Paul now moves on to, to what is from what was for the Christ follower. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. This begins this... This wonderful passage, this wonderful short text of who God is and what God has. God is rich in mercy, He's filled with great love, He has immeasurable grace, and He shows kindness. And it also shows what he has done. He has made us alive. And you have to see the connection there between his great love and his mercy and his grace and the fact that he has made us alive. He made us alive. We were dead and he made us alive. What can a dead person do? Nothing. if If, if you watch The Princess Bride, you know that Miracle Max says, if somebody is all the way dead, there is only one thing left to do. What is that? Go through his pockets and look for loose change. That's what you do with a dead person because they can't do anything else. Uh, Last week, Josh said, (laughs) because we were away, I would already prepared my sermon. He used one of the lines I was going to use. He talked about this idea that people think that In the Bible, there is a verse that says God helps those who help themselves. Remember he said that? Okay, let me take it a step further. According to the Barna research, 60% of people who describe themselves as Bible-believing Christians, 60%, 6 out of 10, believe that that verse is in the Bible. 6 out of 10 Christians, oh yeah, God helps those who help themselves. That would be second opinions 3, I think it is. I don't (laughs) know. It's not in the Bible, and it's bad theology. God helps the helpless. That's what Scripture says. You're dead. You're helpless. Uh, In the Princess Bride, they brought Wesley in, right? Miracle Max, he didn't do anything. He said he's, he's mostly dead, but that means he's partly alive. He just revived somebody who's already alive. That's all he did, and then he got money for it. I believe the amount was 65. I don't know what 65 what? He says, You got money? And he goes, 65. Whatever that is, 65 money units, okay? And he didn't do anything. Stuck a little air thing in his mouth. That's it. If he were dead, he would need a miracle, a real miracle. That's what happens to us when we come to Christ. It's a real miracle. It's a genuine 21st century, 20th century, 22nd century miracle. It's a miracle. Tom Schrader uh, has this illustration. He probably stole it from someone else because I steal all my illustrations from him. So, you know, we're, we're kindreds in that regard. But I want you to think about this. It is in our nature, our human nature, our sinful, fallen, corrupt nature, we're spiritually dead, to constantly reject God outside of his miraculous divine intervention in our lives. And he says, here's what it looks like. Let's say on this platform... I put right here a plate with a head of lettuce, and I put over here a plate with a raw roast, meat, raw, okay? And we place a vulture up there at the eagle's nest. He's already eaten all the eagles, so now he's up there at the the eagle's nest, and we release the vulture. Is the vulture coming to the lettuce, or is the vulture coming to the raw meat? Which one? The raw meat. Every time, it's in the vulture's nature. Okay, some of you will get a different vulture. Here you go. All right, fine. Let's get an Arcadian vulture that's a vegan, okay? (laughs) You put the Arcadian vegan vulture up there, and you release him. Where is he going to go? He's going to go to the meat every single time. The the intervention of God in our lives is a necessity, and it's a beautiful thing. It's not an unfair thing. It's a beautiful thing. It's a good thing, and we should celebrate it as Paul does. Paul is telling us about this great miracle that Christ followers have received. We were dead, but now through this divine, miraculous, grace-filled, loving, merciful intervention from God the Father through his son Jesus Christ, we have life, and that is good news. We've been made alive. M- made alive in what way? That's a great question. I'm glad somebody asked it. Here you go. Two ways. Number one, currently we're made alive. We now see life through the lens of God with the mind of Christ. It's all over the New Testament. We now see life through the lens of God with the mind of Christ. We have an understanding of truth now. We have access to wisdom. We possess genuine hope. We may look the same, but we've been made We've been made new. We're new creations. I I think of 2 Corinthians chapter 4 where Paul says, those who are in Christ, though the outer self is wasting away, the inner self is being renewed day by day. That's good news. The gospel makes our hearts soft and transforms our minds. And here you go. We experience the kingdom of God now. I I will tell you, I am all about getting to the new Jerusalem. I just can't wait. I want to be there. I'm a Philippians 1 guy. It is far better to to die and be with Christ now than it is to be here. I I, I am that. But, But that's a shame because I need to understand that we are in the midst of the kingdom of God now. It's not been completed or perfected, but we get to experience God's kingdom right now in the body of Christ and out in the marketplace as we bring that gospel-centered vision out into the marketplace through the way we work and the way we relate and the way we love and the way we serve. It's a good thing. But we're also made alive eternally, existentially. We are part of the resurrection. The word that Paul uses here, translated made alive, actually has allusions to a resurrected life. And so we're going to share in the kingdom of God eternally as well, the new Jerusalem. So we were made alive temporally right now, and we're made alive eternally. And there's our fulfillment. There's our joy. There's our purpose. It's the Westminster Shorter Catechism. What is the chief end of humans? To glorify God and enjoy him forever. Why? Because God is rich in mercy and has great love for us. That's why. So Paul says, by grace you've been saved. We'll talk about this more in two weeks after Easter when we look at verses 8 through 10. This is just a preview. But we've been saved not by our works. We haven't been saved by our smarts or our cleverness. We haven't been saved by our self-loathing or our causes or our niceness or our achievements. We're saved by an act of unmerited favor by the only one who could ever do such a thing. And Paul says, and in the midst of that, he raised us up and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. This, check this out. This is pretty amazing right here. In our redemption and salvation, God allows us to share in the authority of Jesus Christ. In our redemption, in our salvation, God allows us to share in the authority of Jesus Christ. God has seated us with him. That's a way of saying that through our salvation, which God initiated and secured, we are joining Jesus in mission and purpose, and he gives us the authority to do so. And understand, I want you to hear this. This It's really important. He gives us the authority to do this, but we are not to take it as authoritarian, and there's a difference. Do not become an authoritarian. You will not have a servant heart when you become an authoritarian. Authoritarian. Take it from somebody who's battled with authoritarianism. We have authority, but we are not the authority. Uh, Paul actually describes this in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. He writes this, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, you're a Christian, you are a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us, gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. He's entrusting that to us. He's given us the authority to do that. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, Make, uh, uh, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, Be reconciled to God. What is the job definition of an ambassador? Very simple. I have the authority to represent someone else. We share in the authority of Jesus Christ. And think about this. That sharing of authority is actually what makes us more human. It's a vision of what humanity really is supposed to look like. When we come to Christ, we become more human, and we become perfectly human once again when Christ comes again and brings the new Jerusalem. This is a reference back to Genesis. We are in the process, by the power of the gospel, of being restored to full humanity and what full humanity is supposed to look like. The authority that we are given was something that we actually had in creation, That we were given in Genesis chapter 1 and Genesis chapter 2, which was then completely ruined by Genesis chapter 3 and original sin. We already had that authority. We were co-rulers with God in Genesis 1 and 2. We had co-agency with God in Genesis 1 and 2. That's what being fully human looks like. And we're on that path now in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And it will be made perfect when Jesus comes again. Kingdom of God now. Kingdom of God eternally. And to what end? Well, here's the last cause, excuse me, clause of Paul in this passage. So that in the coming ages... He might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Do you remember Ephesians chapter 1, verse 8? God lavished his grace on us. God doesn't give us just enough grace to do the job. He he overflows us with his grace. He gives us way more than we we could ever imagine or hope for. There's a songwriter named David Crowder, and he writes a song, um, Oh, How He Loves Us. There's a line in that song, if his grace is an ocean, we're all sinking. That's a picture of God's grace. This verse, chapter 2, verse 7, answers why he would do that. In gratitude and in joy, we will marvel at the height, the depth, the width, and the immeasurable expanse of his great love and kindness for us. Life is Jesus. Come to Jesus. Second greatest miracle ever is stated in these verses. When we were dead in our sin, totally unable to respond, God made us alive together with Jesus and raises us up with Him. It's the second greatest miracle. What's the greatest miracle? The resurrection of Jesus Himself. And I'm looking forward to Good Friday and Easter Sunday. Hope you are too. Lord God, we thank you for your word and its truth. We thank you for this great miracle that we get to celebrate. Lord God, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Let us live our lives in joy and contentment with what is right in front of us right now that you've given us Help us to find our mission and purpose right now with what is in front of us. We ask that in Jesus' name. Amen.